As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Economics is about providing optimal outcomes with limited resources, which often involves making tough decisions to forego one thing in favour of another. Education requires economic resources like any other good or service in the economy, and in some cases it can represent quite a significant investment with equally significant opportunity costs. While a better educated population is, all other things being equal, going to generate more output and produce more prosperity for everyone, there can be too much of a good thing. With issues like student debt, skills misalignment, migration and brain drain all being major problems in the world economy, we were lucky enough to speak with Dr Francesco Billeri from University Bocconi in Italy, who was able to provide some valuable insights not only from his distinguished career as an educator, but also from personal experiences in his own country, which has become the epicentre of many of these issues. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we are in for a real treat today because we have a really, really interesting topic and one that's probably affecting most of you watching in a unique way. And to discuss it, we have a really interesting guest today, Dr. Billery from Bocconi University. Um, obviously, you have a fantastic background in education, uh, and that is the topic today, which is the effect of, of education on the economy is always seen as something that's positive. You can't have too much of a good thing. One of the most important things for politicians and other policymakers is to favour education. And theoretically, it makes perfect sense. A more educated population can work in higher skilled industries, perform more value-adding roles in the economy, and create more output overall, which is genuinely, as economists, seen as mission accomplished. But there are uh, certainly sceptics, and there are some genuine arguments to be made uh, against perhaps over-educating our economies or putting too much of an emphasis. And there are some that certainly very convincingly argue that at some point you can have too much of a good thing. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So just to kick us off, in your own opinion, do you think an economy, and looking at this as a, as a system that's designed to produce optimal outputs, even perhaps in a cold-hearted way for, for economic participants, do you think there's any instance or any theoretical instance where you can have an economy that is overeducated? Broadly speaking, I will answer no, but something like this. So overeducation, uh, maybe. I start from a perspective uh, of uh, being uh, cited in Italy. So in Italy, we have uh, less than 30%, 28% actually of uh, 25 to 34 year olds who have a higher education degree. This is less than half uh, of um, countries like Canada, Korea, who are uh, around uh, 70%. So certainly you, you're not talking to someone who sits in an overeducated country. And so maybe there is not such a big issue taking a global perspective. There may be specific areas, specific groups uh, with over-education, but let me get to the bad part. The bad part may be related to what we could call uh, educational mismatch. 
So the fact that it's not necessary that individuals are overeducated. Individuals take, on average, a good decision on the length of an education. Maybe policymakers take a good decision on the length of an education, but it's on the subjects that we tend to have a mismatch. Maybe we are overeducated in some areas and we are undereducated in some other areas. Yeah, and just as a, um, for example, what would be the areas that you highlight where we are overeducated, if you had to pick some? We tend to be overeducated in uh, in areas, in subjects that are very traditional because uh, we tend to uh, convey to the next generation how fantastic was having studied medieval history, at least that's what they do in Europe, how fantastic was to study classic languages that are no longer used. Uh, maybe that's, that's fantastic. Uh, it's a different issue if uh, there's too many of us studying only that rather than the emerging subjects, which could be related to how to study data, the emerging AI idea. So we tend to be overeducated maybe in... Uh, traditional subjects and undereducated in emerging new subjects. And unfortunately, the economy needs much more knowledge, needs many more people, needs a higher level of human capital in emerging subjects rather than in traditional ones. Yeah, certainly STEM is one of those fields, you know, science, technology, engineering, maths. It seems that we can never get enough of that. And that's, um, you know, it makes sense. Obviously, we live in a highly technical world. Um, and a lot of values being created in those industries. And the examples that you gave are often the ones that are sort of criticized for people that went to university, got a higher education and a degree that people somewhat jokingly say, well, we'll never get them a job. Um, now, I did want to touch on that, especially from the perspective of Europe versus, I suppose, the rest of the world. The opportunities are there for people with advanced education to move and find opportunities anywhere. And particularly they're attracted to, you know, major centers of industry where the opportunities are greatest for the highest income, financial centers, technology centers, mostly located in Western Europe and, and North America. Do you think that is uh, accelerating the, the issue of skills mismatch for a country, let's say like, like Italy, where people with the opportunities to, to move abroad and earn higher incomes are, and the people that have got these skills that perhaps are not as in demand from the market are, are being left behind and being stuck in you know, the economies that have actually put the effort into training them. Actually, Italy is a net sender of graduates rather than a net receiver, and that's one of the parts that the country is complaining about. So we, we'd love to attract more people with a degree rather than uh, letting them leave to other countries. So I think from the country perspective, it is a, a problem, especially if you are uh, one of the sending countries. However, let me say two things on this. One is that uh, from the individual level perspective, having more freedom of movement is certainly giving the right incentive to individuals. You want to build a, a good life. You have good ideas. Uh, it's fantastic for the world to let these people move. Uh, the second 
point of view is that we have to understand from the competition uh, for talent perspective that countries that are uh, losing these individuals, maybe because they tend to be overeducated for the level of the economy in that country, should think seriously about the opportunities that in a, in a specific country or region are given to these individuals. So we should create countries that are fantastic for educated talent, ideally in the whole world. And maybe that's uh, kind of my utopian way of thinking, but competition is good also within, in that perspective, also between countries. Yeah. And you're, you're right in saying that obviously that is the, the theoretical best outcome and, and, you know, everyone would, would certainly be happy with that. And I think you touched on a really important point, which was on an individual level, you know, what's going to be best for, for individuals that are making the effort to get educated. But I want to come back to that after I've addressed this, which is Theoretically, that is, that is the best possible outcome. However, that's not the reality of the global economy. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned that, that Italy was a net exporter of, of educated or graduates, because certainly that's something that uh, in sort of my studies I've recognized as affecting uh, your economy, which is already having issues with an aging population and skills shortages. But Italy is still uh, an advanced economy with, with very high standards of living by a global standard. Perhaps it's easy to be a bit naive about this problem from that position where a country like India, Pakistan, or a lot of the developing countries around the world are still losing graduates to these higher opportunity roles in countries that are already quite rich and powerful and have fantastic qualities of life. Do you think perhaps they would be a little bit less blasé about the fact that they're losing these people that, that could be responsible for, for building out and making their economies competitive in the first place? I, I think they should. And to be frank, also Italy is, isn't really happy uh, about losing uh, brilliant graduates. But then uh, I won't put the blame uh, neither on the receiving countries, which basically are welcoming these talents, nor on the on the talents themselves, on those who you could say over-educated themselves from the country they're living in. I think the burden is on the policymakers of the starting country. And the starting country may be, uh, w what is the perspective I will take here? Uh, we should think about, uh, for instance, how easy is it building a business? Are we building a country that is uh, uh, welcoming uh, young, educated, uh, up-and-coming individuals. Certainly, this is not uh, a strength of Italy, and it's possibly not the strength of some of the countries you mentioned where there is uh, a good tension towards education, but not enough jobs. So we, we have to think about these countries as uh, countries in which we have to help uh, brilliant minds to create jobs, including founding their own, uh, their own business, rather than thinking there is a fixed amount of jobs and uh, the amount of jobs is exhausted. I think this is the burden uh, we should put on the policymakers of the sending countries. On, on that, um, specific to policies, I want to ask you just sort of your opinion on, on two things, which first and foremost is that Education may very well be something that is a net positive, and I think it's pretty hard to argue against that. Even if there is a bit of a skills mismatch, 
those skills in other ways improve people's lives. And even if it's not measured in output figures, uh, is a good thing. But it is still an investment and often a major investment either made on behalf of the individual or the country that they're a citizen of or a resident of. And there's the argument that, hey, even if this is something that can help um, increase output and increase people's lives, either on an individual or national level, perhaps there are other investments that could be made that are more productive, things like paying off debt or building out infrastructure, or to use your example, you know, investing into the local economy to make it more attractive to businesses and, and new industries that could provide better opportunities than, than let's say, a college degree or a university degree. Is that something, do you think there's, there's merit to that argument or do you think there's, there's any flaws there? What's your, what's your thoughts on that? So my first thought is that you mentioned uh, excellent examples of uh, long-term investments and they not, not only include education or investing in educational institutions, but they also include, as you said, infrastructure, taking care of public finance. And unfortunately, we know that that's not something that is very compatible with incentives that politicians have. So I don't think education is particularly in better shape compared to infrastructure in terms of politicians' attention. One advantage of education is sometimes uh, the educational sector uh, provides lots of jobs for teachers and other people who work in education. So politicians may be attentive to spending in education, not because of the children, because these children will be long-term investment, but because of the teachers and other employees of the educational sector. So if there is a big educational sector and these employees are important voters, then this could provide an incentive for politicians to put more resources, mostly directed towards the teachers. For instance, again, let me get back to Italy. It's very hard to get investments in schooling infrastructure, in educational infrastructure. It's, it's much easier to get uh, an investment which is kind of raising the salary of teachers. The salary of teachers, by the way, are, are pretty low in a place like Italy. So I think education is not particularly favored by politicians because uh, of the lack of a long-term perspective, but sometimes it may bring them votes. But the same may be true for infrastructures. Of course, if Infrastructure building may bring you uh, the votes of the employees in the infrastructure sector that may guide the politicians' preferences. Yeah, and another uh, another important point is often the investment isn't directly made by uh, the country itself. I'm not sure of the specifics of, of Italy, unfortunately, but certainly here in Australia and, and you know quite famously in the USA, the burden falls pretty heavily onto the students to take out loans to attend a university or, or a college. Um, and that is also uh, an investment that will certainly impact them, but it could also impact the economy uh, in the sense that, you know, if they're, they're busy paying off their loans, they're not contributing to consumption, which can help other industries and, and build that favorable business environment that you were talking about. If you were to speak frankly to someone that's considering it, would you always be in support of pursuing higher education? Or do you think there's, there's instances or conditions where you say, you know, perhaps it's better to stick with just a, a high school diploma or 
go and, and get a trade or find some other alternative? What, what, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that? So here I can put my academic hat and think about uh, what are the potential inequality consequences of what you have described. So the fact that there are many societies in which uh, higher education is either very expensive or very risky because it's expensive but can be paid uh, through a loan. So the consequence of that is that those who can afford to take the risk or to pay, so the kind of the upper classes will be the only one uh, pursuing higher education. So your point is perfectly rational. If I am from the lower or middle classes, given the chance that I will fail to perform or to repay the debt, I'd rather stick to a kind of a lower level of education. I don't think this is consistent with what is the good outcome from a societal perspective. So putting a big emphasis on debt and a big cost on education is not optimal, not because uh, it basically contains the over-educational problem, but because it distorts the talent uh, acquisition process. It basically favors the upper classes against the lower classes, independently on talent. And again, that's that's more um, focused on um, the effects on society. But if you were to, you know, say, sit in a room with a with an individual who's considering it, and I'm sure, you know, obviously in your, you know, experience as a teacher, perhaps you've had some of these conversations where, you know, someone's considering, well, hey, you know, do I pursue uh, perhaps further education, go in for a, you know, an advanced degree, uh, or do I go and uh, and start working? You know, that can happen. It sort of every level of education. Do you think there's any conditions where for an individual and, and just focused entirely on their long-term prosperity and, you know, for argument's sake, just say uh, to heck with the, the well-being of society in general, we're just focusing on this individual that um, they should forego it or, or focus their attention elsewhere? Of course there is. I'm not saying that in all circumstances one should continue forever in education. Also because, uh, in theory, there is also master's, uh, PhD. You can continue forever. It's not necessarily an optimal choice from an individual perspective. What I can say is that uh, if I had to give advice, I would try to think with individual uh, about long-term perspectives. And if the long-term perspectives are supported by taking a job now, maybe there is a fantastic opportunity. There is also a good economy, it's not necessary that uh, this individual should continue towards higher education. However, one should take into account uh, that maybe taking higher education uh, will be lower income now traded for higher income in the future. But that's not always the case, as, uh, as we said before. Maybe the costs are too high and the risks are too high as well. The second point I will add is that uh, I think we are moving also because of demography. Luckily, longevity is spreading around the world. We, we are moving towards a situation in which if you take a decision at the age of, uh, say, 18 or around 18, not to attend higher education, it's not the end uh, of your higher education perspective. Luckily, there could be additional chances because life is long, uh, 
and ideally educational institutions, higher educational institutions to respond to this challenge by uh, allowing uh, individuals to enroll at any age in educational programs. So it's not uh, foregone forever if you decide to work at the age of 18 instead of attending higher education. However, I also run a, a university, so I'm a bit conflicted. <laughs> and I tend to say higher education is always a good idea for you. Yes, of course. And I was literally just about to ask you exactly that. And I think it, it's one of those things that I, I say is always quite important um, in the videos that I do and I have this sort of segment. It's called the, like the, the small disclaimer or the big disclaimer time, which is to sort of recognize my own biases. And I think it's very easy to say, obviously, you know, your have probably multiple advanced degrees and, and I was very lucky to be able to, um, you know, go to, to university here in Australia, a fantastic university here in Australia and, and get a scholarship to, uh, to also do an advanced degree. And we have sort of seen the benefits of it. And I think these kinds of stories are, are overrepresented in our policymakers, the people that actually make decisions around, you know, investments into higher education the importance of it, how it's going to be funded, how it's going to be subsidised. Uh, and do you think the fact that people that have, you know, received higher education have gone to, to university do tend to be the ones making decisions around these issues, they favour it more heavily over some other investments that perhaps might be uh, better for the economy long term? Broadly speaking, I think in Educational policy decisions, politicians tend to, I'll, I'll go back to some of the topics before, tend also to be very traditional. Uh, one of the biases we have, uh, it's a common psychological bias, is that we think that the past uh, is always better than it actually was and the future may be bleak. And in particular, we love uh, the time when we were young uh, teenagers and maybe the age of 18. So many politicians may be very conservative in thinking that the type of school, the type of university they attended is the best one ever. And that is something that tends to uh, favor stickiness in uh, educational decisions uh, for all policymakers. So I'm not thinking necessarily of education versus other investments, but certainly Investing in traditional education is something that is liked a lot because of their own experience by politicians. Uh, on the importance of education, what I can say is uh, I go back to my uh, social mobility example. I was the first uh, university graduate in my family, so my parents went to primary school only. And in that perspective, of course, I bring my own biases and my own preferences, disclaimer for uh, uh, thinking always about social mobility. And that's something that if I were to become a politician, of course, I will bring it with myself. I, I, I will always try to favor uh, policies that... Uh, care a lot about uh, uh, deserving individuals who, who don't have a strong family background. So that, that's certainly something that I will have uh, in my mind if I were a politician, and I'm sure politicians have many other biases. Well, you're already better than most politicians because you do recognize your own biases. So uh, perhaps the, the life of a politician isn't for you. you you're too good. Uh, all kidding aside, I think one of the other things that you touched on there 
and I just think off the top of my head, which is that, you know, obviously they're not the only decision makers. The the role of like, you know, say a parent that's also gone to, to university is going to be a big influence because as you said, they say, oh, you know, it's the, the absolute best time of my life and, you know, you should absolutely go, uh, especially if, you know, they, they went on to have career success afterwards. Um, so I suppose that's not the the only influence, even if we were looking at it from the perspective of policymakers. You know, it's it's interesting that you sort of bring it up because, you know, I had a, a, a fine uh, time at university, but I, I still don't understand why everyone says it was the best time of your life. I thought the uh, the actual education uh, part of it was was really quite interesting, but I don't know if I've been doing university wrong. I was like, oh, it's just it's just kind of more school. You know, I was uh, I couldn't wait for it to to kind of be over so I could go out and 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 get a real job. But it is it is quite interesting, I think, especially in uh, North America, the USA. They have a very strong culture of going out and and partying at university. I I, I don't know. It does. It certainly doesn't happen as much here uh, in Australia. I don't know if the culture's the same in Italy, but I thought it was a an interesting thing to to address. So Italy is very specific. Uh... Because uh, it's one of the countries where students tend to live with their parents, so we have we are almost world record holder in the late uh, home living age. So young people stay with parents until age thirty, uh, and so the the type of partying is uh, something that has to be, uh, let's say, relevant uh, in a situation in which we, you still will live with parents. I had a different image of uh, Australian. Uh, party culture but maybe that's my own bias so thanks for clarifying well maybe i wasn't cool enough to invite to any of the fun parties that they were having at university i don't know it could go either way but certainly um i think in terms of the the draw or the appeal of of university it's much the same here in australia most people that go to university uh, they still live with their their parents certainly in sydney and the major cities where most of the universities are because it's just very, very expensive to afford, you know, a place to live by yourself. And there's no things like dorm rooms and stuff like that, which is quite common, at least from what I can tell in the USA, uh, just doesn't exist here. And it would be interesting to see uh, what kind of an impact that has on uh, the decision of people to go to it, where it's like, oh, you know, it is literally just like going to, to high school here. You're still going to be going home probably to your parents' house going to classes during the day and then, you know, the only difference is that you don't go every day and sometimes you, you have a part-time job in between it, uh, where it does seem like a big part of the draw of the college experience in the USA uh, or North America is that you get to leave home, go live in a dorm, make all these new friends, go have parties. And, um, you know, to an 18-year-old making a decision, that sounds like a pretty appealing option, even if they're not necessarily doing a, a cost-benefit analysis or uh, long-term projections about what it uh, means for their future self. Completely off topic, but I thought it was an interesting um, <laughs> perspective. No, no, but I think you are describing a situation that is extremely heterogeneous within Europe. European Union countries, for instance, but let's also put the UK in the head, are completely different. There are many countries in which students uh, can attend universities for free. They even get a stipend, in particular Scandinavian, from the state. So they are paid to attend a university. They are given housing. There are countries in which uh, university is expensive and they tend to live with their parents and in between. And so within Europe, you find uh, almost all uh, possibilities. Uh, and uh, you see the, the outcome matters a lot. So Scandinavia has. Uh, many more university students. So 
free universities with uh, lots of scholarships uh, matter, and including kind of uh, housing that is subsidized. That matters a lot in the decision. Certainly a big part of it, um, removing those barriers. And that's, um, I think, segues us nicely into the next point, which is if we assume that there are issues where there's, there's overeducation in particular fields, what kind of policies do you think are reasonable to, to address that problem if it is a situation where, let's say, the government is the one um, that's either subsidising that education or, or directly paying for it? Let's assume that the government is subsidizing or directly paying. I think the easiest uh, instruments are kind of uh, different subsidies to different areas. And it's uh, something that has been used uh, by various governments. So let's talk about STEM uh, disciplines. Of course, you could uh, give us light encouragement in terms of uh, higher chances of scholarships to those who attend uh, STEM. disciplines. I think also disconnecting residential location. Uh, So if you have uh, kids going to universities, young people going to university rather than staying with parents, this is favoring perhaps uh, a better thought about what are the, the important subjects to study now rather than something that you just take as a continuation of uh, your uh, secondary school. But in general, I think uh, if there are incentives, uh, these incentives should be used. There is a chance that within STEM, we still think to favor too much the traditional subjects against the emerging ones, but I think it's a minor issue. Yeah, and then, you know, it's sort of an extreme. Um, Here in Australia, for example, uh, the government doesn't pay for a university, but it does have deals with the universities where it you know funds a lot of their work and in return for that they give discounts to students so in a very indirect way it is subsidizing advanced education but how they do that is through a a loan that you get from the government and then you pay it back with your tax so after you earn over a certain amount if you have a debt it's called a, a help loan or a hex loan you pay a higher rate of tax until that that loan is paid off and sometimes it can take you know 10, 20 years, depending on it. And in an example like that, where they're getting loans to students or, you know, in an extreme example where they are um, just paying for it and it is something that's completely government funded, do you think it's ever reasonable to say, hey, you know, we have a shortage of people going into STEM. We really need these skills to help develop our economy. Too many people are going and studying history, as an example. I don't want to single history out and say that that's that's one that's that's overrepresented, but just just for the sake of this example, um, you can't get a loan to go and study history. You can only get a loan to study STEM. Because in that example, I think it's reasonable to conclude that people go, well, I, I do want to go and get a degree. I can't afford to pay for it up front. Well, I'm going to go and do this. And that would automatically make them a, a skilled candidate for, for moving into an, an area where there's a, a shortage after they graduate. It's perhaps an extreme solution, but do you think that's fair, given that ultimately the government is doing this because it's, it's benefiting their society? Yes, to be very direct. I think if we take a government perspective uh, and a societal level perspective, uh, there could be incentives to study specific areas. For instance, let me give another example. 
education in medicine is very expensive. And in some uh, countries, of course, this is free, subsidized, because the government thinks that it's good for the society to have uh, uh, investments to think about uh, the next generation. Of- I, think, I, think that, I think that's probably a fair assumption. You, you probably need doctors for your society. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you need doctors. And I don't think anyone will complain if they say, okay, you are paying a lot to to give uh, big labs uh, to make experiments to these uh, doctors and you're not paying the same amount to those who study ancient literature. Uh, I think it's it's fair from uh, a public policy perspective to differentiate and the same is true for the, the example you gave, STEM versus more traditional subjects. Of course, what is very relevant is that this should not forbid the old subjects, the traditional subject to to survive. We can give incentives, of course. I, I wouldn't go anywhere towards banning disciplines. But incentives, as you know, may may basically contribute to creating that in the in the long run. So there is a, always the uh, an important need to monitor what's going on. Yeah, and, and on that, which is that they are making a contribution, and you know, this is effectively coming from someone that uh, might have never gone to university. You know, maybe never even never went to high school. You know, for the example that you gave uh, of your parents, which I thought is was quite an impressive example, all things uh, considered. But you know, they they probably worked hard their entire life to to give you opportunities, and in doing so, you know, they paid their fair share of tax. And to to them, you know, when we're talking about what's fair, if they're you know paying tax out of their, their hard-earned income to then go and fund schooling for someone who will go get a degree, you know, be an indirect burden on them, and then use that to, to go and get a, a high-paying job in another country like America or, or indeed Australia. We're actually a, a huge importer of talent. Uh, our skilled visa program, something like half a million people over the next two years we're bringing in, which for a country of 27 million people is, is a very, very significant amount of people. Um, so we're heavily dependent on a skilled migration. So I don't want your answer to be too good because it might come at the expense of my own economy. But how would you control that? What kind of system would you propose to make that fair where they're not getting a degree for free at the expense of the taxpayer that, that may have never had that opportunity themselves, but you're also not locking a, a graduate student into, hey, you're not allowed to leave the country and take the skills that we've paid for elsewhere. Do you think there's any constructive way to, to get around that, that issue? I mean, first of all, assume there was no migration, I would say it's still fair because uh, the, the graduates may contribute to paying pensions or maybe to having scientific advances that will benefit my parents' generation. But I think the problem that you are uh, you're mentioning is uh, unfortunately a bit more difficult and say, okay, what if we subsidize education and then these uh, medical doctors, instead of taking care of the taxpayers, fly away to another country where they are better paid? I think when we design uh, subsidy systems, there are ways to try and design these systems uh, in a manner that basically encourages to stay in a specific country. Uh, This can also be sometimes the object of international cooperation. So if there is a a debt system or a loan system, you could say that the loan uh, is uh, 
zero if you stay in a country or remains a burden if you leave the country. Of course, one of the challenges is how to enforce the loan. But in that sense, if we are talking of countries that have uh, trade relations, there should be a way to do that. I don't think it's currently the case because there is a war for talent, but it should be a fair competition, a fair war. And so maybe it would be fantastic if I could come to Australia and say, hey, dear Australia, 10 of the doctors I educated in Italy are working for you. So please help me in getting the equivalent of the loan back to Italy. I think that would be a fair uh, redistribution. Yeah, and it does require a fair bit of cooperation, which is certainly challenging. But we do that for trade, so it's not impossible. It's, we do that for goods. I think in some cases for taxpayers, especially the US, is very good at tracking US citizens all over the world. There are tons of bilateral agreements, so we could do it also on degrees. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, that, that is an interesting um, idea. Of course, a lot of self-required, but, you know, if, if the um, current trends continue where people are just sort of, you know, more and more flocking to, to places with the highest opportunities to make a good income and have a good lifestyle, it's probably something that's eventually going to need to happen. You know, certainly it's less of an issue here, but even as a, a pure anecdote, there are uh, a lot of people that were in my uh, degree that were talking about, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go get a big loan here in Australia and get my master's degree, and then I'm going to go uh, and work in, in finance in the United States, where the incomes are, are higher even still than what you can make in Australia, which is a very high income country already. But I don't have to pay the loan back ever. And then I'll just come back to Australia, keep my citizenship and uh, get, get the pension when I come back, which is uh, obviously a terrible thing to do. But it shows that people do seek out those opportunities where they exist. Yeah, I think we have to design a system that is fair also over the life course of individuals and uh, at some point recognize that uh, maybe some countries that are net importers and receivers of talent should help in uh, contributing to the education of countries that are sender. Again, it's nothing very different from what we could do in, in trade agreements and it's not too different from other tax agreements. Certainly. Now, my last question for you and... Again, I, I think this is one where we've had the optimistic view where there is a system that we could potentially set up, tax agreements, uh, things of that nature, which is, you know, uh, certainly uh, fantastic. But there is another side to this where the education industry itself can actually not be a, a burden, but as much as it is a, a really important part of the economy. I'm not sure specifically, I know a lot of Western European countries uh, benefit from this as well, but certainly, again, here in Australia, one of our biggest exports is education, particularly from countries in Southeast Asia, obviously China being a big one, where our education industry employs a lot of people that attracts a lot of, of students from overseas um, that are paying a lot of money upfront to these institutions that, that employ a lot of people. And sometimes that's coming at the expense of academic integrity. Is that something that, that happens in Italy as well? I'm, I'm sure if it did, you'd probably be well aware of it. I don't think it happens at the expense of academic integrity. I can name my, my university, Bocconi. We have uh, 
in the first uh, undergraduate year that is coming, uh, more than a third of our students are not from Italy. They went exactly under the same selection procedure, which is basically an algorithm as uh, Italian students. We are a private university, so we are tuition-based, and uh, we give uh, scholarships based on need, and we treat in the same way Italian and non-Italian students. There could be, let's say, in particular in English-speaking countries, the most attractive countries, like you mentioned Australia or UK or US, uh, Canada, the richest English-speaking countries. There may be, of course, institutions that rely a lot on uh, non-local uh, students. Of course, this may be part of the of the nature of these institutions. I hope uh, the fact that uh, we have some transparency in terms of ranking institutions, in terms of uh, hierarchy of quality, I hope that prevents higher educational institutions from, uh, let's say, cheating uh, or kind of being uh, non-transparent in uh, admission processes. Maybe I'm naive in that, but I... I'm sure that the highest rank institutions will be very careful in uh, thinking about uh, whom to admit. So we have to survive as an institution. We have to perpetuate an institution that has been there for a long time. So we, in many cases, need students, but we have to keep the bar high. The the reason I bring it up was um, was was not even to address that, but I was interested to get your uh, perspective because it was a very big issue here in Australia, where some of our top-ranked uh, universities did, did have a, quite a problem with that. And it was a, a major scandal where pressure was put from university administrators onto professors and educators to, to look the other way for uh, English skills deficiencies, problems with plagiarism and, and um, you know, major breaches in academic integrity uh, because they relied so heavily on funding from countries where students would pay upfront and directly to keep the institution going. But I, I'm, I'm glad to hear it's, you, well, at least certainly you don't think it's a problem uh, in Italy. Certainly you probably, uh, your, your institutions are probably doing better than ours then. Not sure whether we are doing better than anywhere else, but I think integrity and reputation is what keeps our institutions alive. So I will be very, very worried and I'm happy that if there is any breach of this integrity, this goes to the press and it's discussed. I think it should be. Yeah, yeah, certainly it was a, a major, major issue uh, here in Australia. Uh, that wasn't what I uh, actually wanted to to ask. And, and that is, do you think there's a future where just as we're fighting trade wars and, it, and it's getting quite dirty there, there will be issues where we're fighting you know, skills wars and we're making deals with some countries and not with others or excluding some countries and setting up barriers to go and work in other countries for, for talent? as much as we are with, with exports now? I mean, there, there was a time uh, in which uh, also within Europe, uh, uh, young people uh, and even any other adult could not move from uh, Eastern Europe to Western Europe. So we've seen that. I don't think this type of equilibrium is sustainable. So sooner or later, uh, people who are bright, uh, educated, they want to change the world, will break this equilibrium. So I think there may be instances in history in which 
there will be uh, a war and closure of borders and very big attention in keeping individuals who have specific skills within a specific border, but that cannot be sustained in the long term. So broadly speaking, maybe I'm naive and optimistic, but I think it may happen, but it will not be long-lasting. And it would certainly um, go against the core point, which is something that I keep on trying to come back to here, which is at the end of the day, uh, a fantastic GDP figure and, and great output metrics don't mean anything if, if the people contributing to that are miserable or, or forced to exist in, uh, in a country. And I think that, was, um, that is a great perspective and, and hopefully it isn't something that materialises. So, Dr. Villery, thank you for making the time to, to add your perspective. It was fantastic to have your point of view, not only as, um, you know, obviously a, a very prestigious educator that has a long history in the field, but as someone from a, a different country, one that, that probably gets much less attention than the, the one that everyone focuses on, which is the USA. So I'm, I'm glad that hopefully between the two of us, we were able to add a, a more global perspective to the issue. So I really do appreciate your time coming on. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. And please, let's do it again. Absolutely. Now it sounds good. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.